0: Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie Delacensory and Sean Spittler.
1: Welcome everybody. I'm Katie Delasensory, the VHA historian, and I'm joined by producer Sean Spittler. Ahoy hoy. How are you today?
0: I'm very excited. We are talking about of all things. The history of the VHA. So we're a history-driven podcast. It only makes <laughs> sense that we talk about the history of the very organization we work for.
1: We're, we're completely in my wheelhouse today. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. And outside of mine. So. <laughs> <laughs> so quick question. We both work for the VHA, Veterans Health Administration, which falls under a bigger umbrella of the VA which is Veterans Administration. You know, I just want to help the audience understand what is VHA and how does it fit into the VA? Because when we say that we're celebrating our 75th anniversary, we're not talking about the VA. Correct. We're talking about VHA.
1: Right. In some way, the VA has been around almost as long as as our nation has in different forms. But when we talk about it today, the Department of Veterans Affairs encapsulates three organizations within it, right? You have the National Cemetery Administration. You have benefits administration, and then you have the largest component, which is the Veterans Health Administration. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, VHA oversees all of the hospitals, all of sort of the outpatient clinics, anything related to veterans' health care. And VHA, I think, is is larger than some other agencies mm-hmm. in, in, on their own. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the biggest component.
0: So we talk with, with a couple of gentlemen, they're both historians, correct?
1: Correct. Yep. Yeah. So we're talking with the mics today. So we have Mike Visconich, who is the VA chief historian, and we have Professor Michael Gambone, who is a professor of history at Cutztown University. There's a lot of discussion going on today about sort of how veterans have been treated in the world and right. in America and kind of how the modern roots of the Department of Veterans Affairs goes back to today. So, I'm really excited to speak with them both. I think they both bring a very unique perspective and it's great to kind of be able to to talk about the significance of this 75th anniversary with them today.
0: Yeah, and and it's really interesting to hear the perspective of veterans in you know like a pre-world war one context where they were treated like animals so right it very or they're like
1: drifters yeah yeah, yeah. like because it oh it it wasn't the profession today that we kind of think you know it, right. it was for a different type of individual or, um, you know, they might have been like a mercenary who was paid to fight on behalf of, right. of another country or something like that. So, yeah, you know, you, you kind of have this idea and you think that's how it's always been. But when you talk with Mike Vesconich about how veterans have been treated over the years, you're like, wow, this, you know, it, right. it gives you a perspective on it. That's that's quite interesting and unique. Right.
0: And uh, during the interview, we, we bring up a movie the Best Years of Our Lives, which I have not yeah. seen, but you have.
1: I have. It's a great film from 1946, and it's about three service members who return home from war and how each one of them faces their own sort of unique challenges in in readjusting to life. And I think, you know, it, it's kind of the perfect movie for the discussion we're having today because you know, we were really centering on, on 1946 and the experience of veterans and service members coming home from war and just some of the challenges they faced. And, and I think it's it's a great movie. And it really kind of came at a very unique time, too, because after World War One, silent movies were, were the thing. And so this is a kind of right. a unique moment for Hollywood to kind of tell the story about service members, because, I mean, how many, how many war movies are out there and how many movies about battle have you seen but to kind of right. capture this perspective of a returning soldier is is absolutely worth worth presenting so yeah i recommend
0: you know the fact that i've never heard of this movie is surprising you know i, I i'm a huge film buff and uh, as i'm kind of reading about this a little bit learning that it was the highest grossing film in both the united states and the uk since the release of gone with the wind and is yep. the sixth most attended film of all time in the UK with over 20 million tickets sold. And then it says in 1989, it was one of the first 25 films selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States Film Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. So that's that's a big deal. This is a big deal. That's a pretty
1: big deal. And, and you know, I, I think... You know, it really speaks to how much of a need there was in the public and Mm -hmm. and by veterans to want to see themselves reflected on the screen and have that experience reflected. You know, they didn't want to come home from war and completely forget about their experience and what they had been through. And I think the response the movie got showed that there is a need to connect with what they had been through and that experience after the civil war some of these the national home for volunteer and disabled soldiers kind of provided that as a community for some civil war veterans to kind of live together and to sort of be there for one another who had gone through that experience but by the second world war Mm -hmm. that war just kind of like it, it ended and everybody go back to to being a civilian but some of those experiences can't be forgotten.
0: Well, even World War II, I, I didn't realize this until I watched the HBO miniseries, The Pacific, but you don't realize when we think the end of the war, we kind of picture the fall of Hitler and forget that there was still a second war being engaged in the Pacific. So you, you get all of the, these army guys returning home from the European theater and getting a ticker tape parade. And then you've got Marines who are still just exhausted in, like, some of the worst fighting in the war. And then when they come home, they don't get any celebration. It's just, oh, we we celebrated the end of the war a long time ago. Welcome right. Home. We are
1: ready to move on. Right. We are ready to go on from that. And it's really interesting that you bring that up because my grandmother, who was stationed in France, they they put her on a ship and we're like, OK, we're going to you're we're done now in Europe. We're going to send you to to Japan. <sighs> so exhausting. And so she was gearing for up for that. And she got she gets on the boat and the atomic bomb is dropped. So instead oh. of sailing for Japan, they sail for America. Kind of to tying it into the story we're going to talk about, Victory Over Japan Day, August 15th, 1945, happens. And then the day after that, Omar Bradley is sworn in as administrator mm-hmm. of the Veterans Administration. Right. So immediately you have this, okay, the war is over. While they're still sort of celebrating and, and kind of the end is, is going on, you have Bradley coming in and, and saying like, OK, my job is just beginning now. Right. How do we care for 16 million returning right. soldiers?
0: And so 1945 is when the VHA started.
1: Very quickly at the end of 1945. And then it's signed into law by President Truman on January 3rd, 1946.
0: So this tells me it's no coincidence then that the movie we were talking about, The Best Years of Our Lives, is also released that year. Samuel Goldwyn was inspired to produce a film, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, about veterans after reading an August 7th, 1944 article in Time about the difficulties experienced by men returning to civilian life in 1944. So this is very much in the zeitgeist things that are are happening. So this film being released the same year that the VHA has started seems to be kind of a part of the bigger picture of what was going on in, in veteran culture, if you will.
1: Right. Right, exactly. And, and you sort of have this with every war. But by 1946, there's you have so many service members and so many returning home. And really, you know, as, as um, Professor Gambone says, they really become a political force, too. So you mm-hmm. sort of have all of these things kind of coalescing together to sort of create this this new way we're going to provide healthcare to veterans and also how we're going to tell their stories, you know, right. through this film. Yeah. So it's really an interesting time.
0: Well, without further ado, let's, let's jump into our interviews yeah. here. Let's get,
1: let's get to it. First, we have my colleague, Mike Viscinage, who is the VA's first ever chief historian. And secondly, Michael Gambone, professor of history at Cutstown University and the author of The Greatest Generation Comes Home, The Veteran in American Society. So to both the mics, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Mike Viscanage, before we jump in and discuss the founding of the Department of Medicine and Surgery, can you give us a historical overview of the nation's relationship with its veterans from the beginning of our country and, and kind of tell us how healthcare has been a part of that?
2: Absolutely. So let's set the way back machine. Take yourself back to the time of the American colonies. And like so many other things that our founders brought with them was a reference point primarily from Europe of how things were done there. And of course, a lot of things, the the point of America was, well, we're going to do some of those things differently, right? To give you a sense for what what does it mean to be a a veteran in Europe at the time of the American colonies, well, if you were were traveling in France in the mid-1700s and you stopped at an inn for the night, it was not uncommon to see a sign on the outside of the establishment that said, no dogs, prostitutes, or soldiers allowed. Uh if you were killed in battle it would not be unlikely that the ceremony honoring your ultimate sacrifice was typically that a large pit was dug and all of the dead bodies including the dead horses would you know be pushed into the pit and covered up and left unmarked unless you were a general or a nobleman in which case your body was you know carted home and buried in the the family plot if you were grievously wounded in 16th century britain you might be awarded a begging license that allowed you to legally panhandle on the streets of London. So what does this mean? All of these things just speak to what was that relationship between societies and veterans at that time in Europe. And veterans were held in low regard This is some degree for good reason. They were typically mercenaries, opportunists, at best conscripts. But all of this changed with the American experiment, uh, this idea that free citizens would fight for a free nation, that there would be citizen soldiers, if you will. This was really a, a, a new for that era concept. And this is what sets the stage for this unique, truly unique relationship between uh, America and its veterans.
1: Let's jump ahead a little bit. It's 1945, and as World War II draws to a close, 16 million GIs are transitioning back to civilian life. What makes this moment different from other times Americans have come home from battle and, and how are their health care needs different?
3: Well, I mean, there's, there's some obvious ones. I mean, you have the, the sheer scale of it, where you have, you <laughs> know, the, the, the number we seem to throw around, which is growing a little bit, is 16 million returning troops. You're also looking at a time when you have the first introduction of things like sulfa drugs. And advanced uh, surgical techniques, so you're seeing more people survive. I mean, wounds that would have resulted in uh, infection and death in World War One no longer happen. So the sheer volume that is, is basically going to overwhelm the system that's constructed for it. And I, I kind of camping on to what the other Michael said. You know, American preparedness for this always tended to go in two phases. It seemed like we would have a fit of remorse and then an overreaction. We were in that kind of ebb flow. Interestingly enough, during World War II, uh, where the VA wasn't ramping up at all on its own devices. It's interesting how much reliance they had in just medical care. Uh, they had the reliance on the uh, military for basic, mm-hmm. you know, th- physicians. You've got this tidal wave coming and you're just simply not ready for it.
1: I'm going to kind of open it up a little bit and, and kind of set the stage here for for what, 1945. So it's, it's August 1945 and you're in the shoes of General Omar Bradley known by his fellow GIs as the soldiers general, the architect of D-Day. He assumes the position of VA administrator on August 15th, which is one day removed from Victory Over Japan Day. While the rest of the nation is is still very much celebrating the end of the war, he's just been sworn in as the uh, second administrator of the Veterans Administration, the largest administration in the government, assuming a role that FDR once described as the hardest job in Washington. So what what challenges does he face as he takes over? And what is sort of the post war political cultural environment that he's walking into?
2: I think for me the interesting part is when you look back to who is helping lead our government at that time and and their military experience, because I think that shapes a lot of the formation of, of what the thought patterns were amongst uh, sen- senators, uh, congressmen, President Truman, this idea of, of what was their experience, and many of them, of course, were World War One veterans. For me and, and Michael, you can you can uh, layer on, but I think this idea, for instance, of how the experience with with the first real international role of American World War One and how. America needed to respond to those World War I veterans, albeit a much smaller group, but how things did not play out as well as I think as a nation and as those selected officials experienced firsthand for World War One veterans. And we saw that in the form of things like the bonus march. Uh, 1932 on Washington, where World War One veterans were promised a a bonus 20 years after after the the end of the war, but because of the depression, were lobbying heavily to receive it earlier. But ultimately, the marchers were were broken up by the army by some later famous you know leaders in the army. The, the repercussions of how things didn't go in World War I uh, may well have played into their thinking about how to do it better.
3: Yeah, let me and I can add to that. You know, we look at, the, you know, that kind of top-down approach. I mean, Truman is definitely cognizant of the need. You do have a lot of veterans in Congress. I think one of the things that was useful was the fact that the GIs were definitely not quiet about what they thought was good or bad. So you have, you know, the media being invited into a lot of these Veterans Administration facilities and illustrating horror shows, you know, in plain sight. Again, the classic American uh, approach to this would be to make you know, make sure that transparency led the way to reform.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think you're kind of setting the stage for Bradley, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons he's there, because this, this had become so incredibly embarrassing that it had to be dealt with. I also think a lot of these politicians were also smart enough to know that these immobilized GIs were also going to be voters. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love so telling like, my students, you know, the the motto of "no boats, no votes." You know, they're they're writing yeah. everywhere. That didn't stop after they were demobilized. All this is, you know, scene setting for Bradley. And I think the story gets really interesting when we start talking about the things he does. He's not a obtuse leader at all. I mean, the the qualities that he had were pretty incredible.
0: So you're you're starting to touch on this a little bit. So can you talk about the the post-war political, cultural, and and just environment that that General Bradley is walking into.
3: One of the reasons I actually wrote my, the book was because we tend to gloss right over 46 and 47 and assume there was a seamless transition back into peacetime. And that's just not at all how it worked. So people, you know, the the beefsteak election in 46 was a pretty obvious, what's the word? I mean, what, what, what people campaigned on were not complicated. Mm-hmm. They wanted, you know, markets to have products again. They wanted apartments and houses. They wanted mass transit that worked. So it's very restive. Mm-hmm. Kind of leading the way on these, are again, veterans. It's interesting when you look at oral history, you know, what did they want when they got home? And everybody, uh, for some reason, wanted a fresh glass of milk. I always thought that was interesting. And they weren't getting them. So... <laughs>
0: like literally? They wanted yeah, literally a... F- really interesting.
3: If you drank powdered milk for four years, I trust me... Uh, <laughs> Or eat uh, spam, fried spam for breakfast. You know, eight hundred times. Um,
2: yeah,
1: true. Yeah.
3: What you have on the, ed- you know, the lead edge of all this tumult are all these enfranchised Americans who are going to wield that veteran status for a purpose. You've got a different form of citizenship that I think is, you know, sharpening this debate even more.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, the generation that went into Congress in '46 and ran and won understood that really well.
1: And and I think in reading Bradley's words, you get just an overwhelming sense of how personal this is to him. He sent these men into into battle, and he really feels it's resp- his responsibility to take care of them and and give them the best future that he can as as VA administrator. Yeah, his I think his best decision was to recruit the top doctor from the European theater, Dr. Paul Hawley, to really focus in and lead that charge on healthcare. And, and, and Holly is just a, an amazing figure to, to study. He's so outspoken. You really get the sense that he, too, just has no time to, to deal with the bureaucracy. And he just has, there's just so much that he, he wants to change about VA healthcare. So he, he does these amazing things. He moves uh, hiring practices for doctors outside of the civil service system, he starts to align medical schools and promote training and research and he takes hospitals outside of their more rural settings that you had with the soldiers' homes and and hospitals that were built up to that point, and he puts them in major cities. Looking back at all of this through the the lens of history, it all just sort of makes sense, and it seems like it it just happened, but in in the fall of 1945, it wasn't so certain. So can you kind of talk us through some of the significance of these and some of the challenges he faced?
2: I I think the the challenge of (laughs) You know, we 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 even inside VA sometimes can talk about the frustrations of the bureaucracy. Right. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the administration, of the VA was then too a very bureaucratic on its worst day, a frustrating process. And this idea of how do you, you know, how do you break some glass as far as getting a bureaucracy past the, its own, sometimes self-imposed barriers to making things better? And the idea that that being able to come in as leader and recognize that as Bradley did and bring in those new players and team players, in addition to Dr. Hawley, many others who I I think that's a seminal thing is bringing in the other leaders that do Mm -hmm. reshape, that that don't come to the organization with any preconceived notion. And I think that's what allows this this catalyst to change the VA into an organization that then can react to this uh, huge influx of veterans. and and implement new legislation to like the GI Bill going beyond necessarily the healthcare part. But certainly the healthcare part, the most urgent and important. I think too, just the, the easy part when you bring in military leaders and 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 uh, senior leaders like that is you know remembering that that there were because the war was winding down the idea that we were going to take army and navy hospitals that were built specifically and manned by uniform personnel and part of that whole strategy too of turning those over to the VA then to care for the veteran population that would need you know uh, ongoing or additional care to continue their recovery from wounds so I'm struck by those things as as part of that Ability for him to come in and get past some of those barriers.
3: Yeah, I agree. I and I, it's really interesting how much you know people like Hawley and Bradley work against type. I mean, this is something Mm -hmm. that people who work with the military learn. But these aren't Martinets. These aren't Prussians. They didn't want a centralized uh, organization at all. They wanted to delegate down and start opening up decision making at the regional and local level. And that that was really important. I think you know Hawley linking medicine to teaching hospitals was that, you know, his way of delegating, almost civilianizing a military function. So there's nothing really revolutionary about it when you look at it that way, but right. it was to the VA. And it yeah. was really important. I'm picking through some of the old work I did, and I realized this hometown project that they were working on, where you're going to open up, you know, pharmacies, dentists, doctors to local access, federally paid. That's really interesting. Because they weren't even there weren't you know as many new centers as they built and as many facilities that grew. They weren't trying to monopolize healthcare either. Mm-hmm. A really interesting kind of innovative and inclusive and flexible system they're they're going after here. How it happened so fast is uh, just really interesting. I like politically Bradley you know offers his resignation when he's fighting over the civil service. Okay, good. That's a good card yeah. to play mm-hmm. it perfectly.
2: I agree as well. I mean, to me, this idea of really a, a very creative and entrepreneurial approach to, again, how do you break out this bureaucracy out of its old mold and and do new things and really think things up and do them? So not only were their paradigms broken in terms of how VA did business, I think there were paradigms broken for how the the medical field did business. I think that one of the seminal aspects of, of Bradley and Holly's leadership, too, is this idea of... Really advancing VA more and more into the idea that they that, that the VA health system not only cares for veterans, but it's it's a trendsetter for the entire medical community.
3: No, I agree. And you're talking about just in terms of, you know, how you're handling therapy in terms of new protocols, you're absolutely right. I think one name yeah. we haven't mentioned is uh, Dorothy Wheeler, when she's brought in to address nursing and staffing, that introduces a whole new generation of people, you know, really at the at the crux of it all. And if I were ever to do more work, I think it would be about her. And also, when you think about it, you're bringing in younger doctors, younger nurses, no, more staff, and you're also paying them in a competitive way. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting kind of departure from the old Democrat trope about socialized medicine not rewarding innovation. This kind of is capturing the Republican rhetoric of the time, and it's with, in its own words. Mm. There's a lot going on here.
2: That's a, that is a, a really important piece about the ability to pay people too. And it even, I mean, we see it today in VA with things like the categories, the two main categories of, of employees, but the idea that, that it, that's what allows VA to bring on medical experts in a way that compensates them in a different way than the usual federal system.
3: Mm-hmm. And the pay raises, you know, during that period are pretty significant. I mean, they're catching up for, for you know, literally decades behind what was normal.
1: Mm. yeah it, it's it 's just such such a pivot to what had been going on before you know even in terms of how we talked about coming home from battle and they called it shell shock in World War One and and you see it becoming more psychology more of a field, the, the development of seeing post traumatic stress as a medical condition that needs to be to be treated. I, I just think Bradley is such a shrewd politician too. He threatens to resign, they both do, he and Holly on on New Year's Eve, right before this legislation is about to be signed by Truman.
0: What did it feel like in that moment when we don't have the, the hindsight of history to kind of look forward. Can you kind of paint me a picture of in that moment?
3: Well, I mean, the word we use that we've been hearing a lot in the last few years is norms. And mm-hmm. I think if you look at World War II as a whole, you see a lot of those, you know, what have been traditional norms being broken in terms of soldiers having a more political role in life and policy making, And also, I think in terms of mass mobilization. So you could even go back to the New Deal and see where, you know, people are being invited into a discussion Mm -hmm. They're more used to rallying around a point. I think the degree of prestige that is vested in the military is burnished by the victory. So I think Bradley's aware of all these things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that struck me about how he organized the VA was that he invited people to help. I mean, he wasn't going to try again to monopolize this within professions. So VA volunteers, community groups are all brought in. And I think that's also very practical because you have um, at some point they're going to leave uh, VA care and go home. And people did want to know how to take care of uh, veterans and do it in an informed way. The depression and the war gave a lot of momentum to what you know they were going to be doing, and I think they were aware of it.
1: Yeah, and I think too that he has not—he has the public and the press overwhelmingly behind him in in moving forward with some of these these changes and armed with, with a half a billion dollar budget, they're really able to make some meaningful changes to, to how veterans receive their health care.
2: I think what's fascinating politically too, in terms of, of Sean, back to this idea of, of the willingness to resign, in some ways I have to think it's a win-win for Bradley. Sure. Hey, he didn't really want the job in the first place. He was kind of voluntold to take the position, right? Uh, although not to take away from his passion and, and dedication to veterans, because I think that, as you as you noted, absolutely sincere and meaningful. But he he was unique in his position because he was still a retained on active duty records of, of the Army. And the idea is that the, the deal was he was going to go back to a position in the Army, presumably Chief of Staff of the Army, which he ultimately mm-hmm. held. For him, it sounds like, okay, well, if I resign, if I don't get my way, I think that gave him extra leverage, in other words, to get what he needed to get the job done to make these really significant changes to VA.
3: Yeah, it's and I think he was very dynamic about continuing and developing support. Him being interviewed by Bob Hope to talk about the VA was was always struck me as interesting. I mean, Bob Hope is our, you know, their version of Stephen Colbert. Right, right. (laughs) But he he really understood how to get through that infotainment medium his message. You know, we were talking about it before the broadcast. I mean, when the best years of our lives came out, he jumped right on that bandwagon and said, "This is going to be mandatory viewing." He put his name next to it because, it, you know, he he put himself in with really important cultural movements. Right. Mm-hmm. Just he kept developing his relevance. That kind of redefined Shrewd again.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps for the listener, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I believe that's a movie that I think a VA employee ought to watch today because this is about this transition of three service members back to the civilian world and coping with Moreover, PTSD issues, but also the subtle issues of just you've been immersed in the military world, you've been fighting a war and now you, you know, you're living in this transitional gray world where you're having to readjust. I think that is a story and an intuitive nature of Bradley, right, to recognize that that's part of the secret sauce for for bringing veterans successfully back, integrating them into their communities, caring for their wounds, but also just that that successful reintegration back into society. Right.
1: And and because that's something that happens after every war, you know, after the Civil War, the nation is ready to move on. They're done with war. They're moving on. But for the veterans, they're dealing with a whole host of of issues, maybe not ready to move on. And that happens after every war, but really this is the first war where film, talking films are around to to be able to kind of portray that. And and I absolutely agree. I think it should be part of every VA's employees viewing list, yeah.
2: I think in particular the magnitude, right, too, is just, that's what's to me is so eye-opening. I mean, we're talking about 10% of the U.S. population was in uniform during the war. That's, that's an incredible uh, amount of people compared to today, which I believe is hovers around 1%. So just that idea of everyone in the civilian world had a brother, husband, son mm-hmm. who were in uniform. So everybody experienced yep. it. And I think that too allowed the things to happen and the things needed to happen in the way that Bradley was able to execute them and build this better system.
1: All right, so after Truman signs the legislation creating the Department of Medicine and Surgery, a flurry of activity happens for the rest of, of 1946. Days later, Northwestern signs on to affiliate with Heinz Hospital, Thousands of doctors are hired. The, the largest hospital construction project in American history is begun. You have the first female physicians hired. You have the voluntary service started, the canteen service started, just just so many things. For me as a federal historian, I think there are very few times in, in the history of the government where so many changes were made so quickly. Even though things still needed reforming and, and improving after that, I can't really think of another time where, where that many changes were made that quickly, and I just kind of want to ask you both what what do you think the legacy of the creation of the Department of Medicine and Surgery is?
3: Well, it's it's always great when things work. I used to say that in the <laughs> army.
1: Yeah.
3: Or somebody had the right keys. That was always a good sign. I think it sets a, a high bar that we have read. You know, we have achieved in a lot of ways. I visited Walter Reed back in 2015. The treatment they have for. Uh, neurological injuries from, you know, traumatic brain injury, are, it's tremendous. Uh, it's actually, you know, you're back to the cutting edge. So something like that is possible, you know, when, when you have the proper focus and resources and leadership. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a very high bar, but it's a very cons- inconsistent one between the time Bradley left and the time period I'm talking about today.
2: I think it's continued to play out th- this idea that, as the VA always ha- has since 1946, of course, but even before that is that, you know, every war experience, every cohort, every larger cohort of veterans, they have different needs. I think on a good day, the legacy of, of General Bradley is is this ability to think outside the box, right, to to be innovative. And I think the better on our good days, when we're able to innovate to serve that next wave of veterans needs, that's when we're at our best. And I think looking to, to, to the founding of the of the modern VHA. And those are some great lessons that when, when we do do our best, it's when we adapt and we react effectively to each new wave of veterans and their needs.
3: I think it's all, I mean, I'd like the volunteer aspect of this as well. Mm-hmm. I registered as a VA volunteer five years ago. That's been really great to see. And I think that type of outpouring where you have communities who want to be involved. I worked with a place called Riverhouse PA, which was involved in recreational therapy from the Coatesville and Lebanon VAs. And they loved it. I think it accomplished the therapy for the veterans and also reintroduced them back to civilians who really didn't understand them. It was weird kind of being an ambassador because, you know, I was the volunteer veteran trying to get people to understand what veterans do or like or want. And it was helpful. I mean, it t- it, there's some obviously missteps because they don't understand, you know, infantry humor. Uh, but they did when we were done. Right. <laughs> Watching guys walking on the trails while other guys are rolling rocks down on them is, you know, something they like to do. You know, so we had to be careful at some points. But no, I think that that's a legacy from the 40s. I mean, people that's one thing I really like about this country is people want to help people volunteer.
2: I was going to say, I think that's an awesome way to maintain something, too, that when we compare the era that we're in now and the era of the founding of the VHA is, again, that that huge percentage of the American population that had intimate familiarity with what it meant to serve. And the idea that that's a much smaller reference point for the American public at large. But the idea that as we do our jobs in the VA and in VHA and these opportunities to interact, Michael, as you highlight, you know, with, with the public or, or with volunteers who are willing to interact with our, with our veterans, that does nothing but great things for for how we can accomplish our mission and, and effectively continue to serve veterans.
0: We're recording this during a pandemic right now and and so we're kind of walking through history in a lot of ways as myself being a non-historian I've kind of found it fascinating as I as I talk with Katie that as historians part of your job is to look at the now and anticipate what will be historical about that and how do we preserve it so can you talk about what VA is doing to preserve history as it is happening right now
2: Hooray, we do have a role that's very important in the in the immediacy, right? While we're historians and we look at the past, what we're doing is we're collecting on all these things that are happening out there now. Because what we know is that this is a moment that historians are going to be looking back at for decades. I mean, they'll be you know pulling this apart 100 years from now. How, what did we do? How did we do it? What kind of innovations? How did you make masks out of what? So this idea, what we're doing in VA and hooray, we've just kind of in the nick of time, we've built enough of a program where we have a few small talented team where we're out doing collecting key documents. We're out doing oral history interviews so we can capture that. That's a recognized way that historians, researchers, writers can go back and find out what were people thinking at the moment. And artifacts. So we're just now in VHA beginning this process of reaching out to all of the VA medical centers, the the regions, but to solicit these things. That again, and only in VHA, those who are our employees who've been out there know. Hey, this is significant. This was the very first temperature taking, you know, handheld device to screen people. These things seem mundane in the moment, right? But you have to put yourself in the in that seat of hey. 20 years from now, I'm at that kind of exhibit that's showing, how did we react to that?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And 3D printing. I, we were talking with, with Dr. Stone earlier about 3D printing technology and, and how that's being used right now. And, and, and that's, those are artifacts.
2: Yep. So soliciting these things, collecting them, preserving is what we do as your historian team. I'd say lastly, very, a little more pragmatically is, you know, we talk about collecting documents and oral history interviews in particular, two degree artifacts, but that handoff to the lessons learned process about, oh, if leaders are dealing with something 20 years from now about some different sort of pandemic event, they're going to want to look and know, well, what did we do then that didn't work? What did we do that worked? And what can we take from that? And that's what a history program, I think, does that should be encouraging to all of us. Right.
1: Absolutely.
3: It's like I've been waiting for you guys for 15 years. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my own take on it, I mean, I, I look at the newspapers and I see troops sleeping in the Capitol building today.
0: Yeah.
2: We mm-hmm.
3: talk about civil-military relations now, and we talk about them a lot. And I think we're moving way beyond the old models from Harrington or any of these old historians. We're talking about people and troops, and to me, veterans have always been the bridge between the two. I mean, we're, they're the like I said, they're the ones who are, have feet in both worlds. I really think it's important now to understand a giant group of people. I and mean, we're talking tens of millions in the time period since World War II um, mm. that aren't a monolith. They're just not, and I think that's the you know the need is to you know pick apart the. The differences and idiosyncrasies and all of it. That's what I've, I've been fighting through in a classroom for 26 years, not just how to capitalize America, but to talk about abstracts like this that really are going to be really important right now and for years. This is the world in January 2021. And I think there's a definite need for what we do. I get myself fired up for class next
1: week. <laughs> well, that's a great way to end, end the episode. So, both mics, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you. My pleasure. Next week, we're talking about something that's a little taken for granted, I would say, something that I, I, I just kind of assumed was always a thing. we're We're talking about academic affiliations. Just real quick, what does that really mean, Katie?
1: Right. so it's it's something that's born out of seventy five years ago. It refers to VA's partnership with academic institutions. So mm. how VA has partnered with the nation's medical schools to not only address the need of providing health care to veterans, but also changing and expanding that role and to really become a research powerhouse that right. VHA is today. So I'm really excited to jump in and learn a little bit more about that and talk with our guests about it.
0: I agree. So we will see everyone next week. Have a good time.
1: Bye, everybody you ah.